0: Good morning. Good, morning. Good morning. Let's begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love, for your care, your mercy, for the truth about your kingdom. We pray that your spirit will be with us this this morning, that our hearts will draw close to you, our minds will be enlightened, and we will be effective agents in your cause. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And just a little feedback. Two weeks ago, as you know, I wasn't here. I was at the American Association of Christian Counselors in Branson, Missouri, and we had a really good time out there. Our booth was out. We uh, had so many people coming by, picking up our materials, and I I was able to speak to the the group and presented some of our concepts and very positively received. We have people um, all over the country that have come uh, to us and And uh, came to us and told us how they are using our materials uh, locally, uh, using it with patients, using it at their church. So the message is is getting out. Last weekend I was at uh, Glendale, California and uh, was at the Vallejo Drive uh, Church there right next to the hospital and did the God in Your uh, Brain seminar and it was very well received. And uh, very positive comments from everyone out there. So I want to thank those people for having us out. So today we're doing lesson number five in the quarterly, the book of James, and the title this week is "Love and the Law," love and the law. And so the first thing, when you heard the title of the lesson, "Love and the Law," uh, anything pop into your head? Anything come to mind? One and the same. One and the same. Oh, Wendell says one and the same. So the, the first question I had is, what law do you think the lesson is suggesting when they use the term in the title, the law? And if you're if you're not sure, there's a picture that could help you. <laughs> they put a little picture there. And the picture, if you notice, is the Ten Commandments with a heart cut out of the middle of the Ten Commandments with a person standing in the middle of the heart in the center of the Ten Commandments. When I was at uh, Glendale last week at the church at question and answer time, a gentleman stood up and asked, when I refer to the law, um, the law of love, am I referring to the law that was in heaven before sin or am I referring to the Ten Commandments? How would you answer the question? I'll tell you my answer in a second. Ten Commandments are a subset. Okay, Ten Commandments are a subset. I like that. It's meant for humans as opposed to meant for the universe. So I said, um, when I refer to it, I'm referring to the protocols upon which life is constructed to operate, which is the law of love built into the fabric of the cosmos and has its origin in the character of God. This is what I'm referring to. Then he asked, well, which law is the eternal law? The, the law upon which things are, are built to operate or the Ten Commandments? Which is, is eternal. What do you say to that? First. Which is the eternal law? Well, I ask, define, what's eternal mean? What's, does it, what does eternal actually mean? For all time. All time future only, or all time past as well? Uh, past and future. So So if we go into the past, can we find a time in, in history past where the Ten Commandments were not in existence? Yes. yes. Before creation. Yes, but we can't find a time when the law of love was not in existence, can we? No. no. So that's how I answered the question. We go back in time. And the, I asked the audience, though, I said, was there a time in the past when the Ten Commandments did not exist? And the answer was a chorus of yeses and noes. <laughs> <laughs> there was a mix. There was a mix. Some thought, no, the Ten Commandments have always existed. So we have to look at the evidence. You know, Paul in, in Galatians says that the, the law was added. The law was added. The Ten Commandments, the codification, as Wendell was saying, of the law of love, specifically designed for humans. Angels didn't need that law to. Of, of sin passing down through the generations or honoring mom and dad. And then, of course, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, we know that law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law was made not for the righteous. Just stop right there before I go on to the rest. But if it was not made for the righteous, no, it is not made. I mean, this this particular law was made. The codification of the great law of law was made for, not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, unholy and irreligious, and so forth and so on. It means at the time before sin, back when there was only holy angels, this law didn't exist. It wasn't made yet. It wasn't needed. It was made later as a diagnostic tool. And of course, the Sabbath didn't exist until the creation of this planet, this earth rotating in relation to this sun, which didn't exist until Genesis 1, creation week, is what measures the Sabbath. If we look at the Sabbath lesson, James 2, 13, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Did it warm your heart to read that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understood it, OK, so as we remember, remember we, we challenge you to look through the two law lenses, look through the human kind of law, a set of rules imposed, look through design law, how things are actually built to operate. Let's do the imposed law first. If you if you read this text through the lens of a system of rules that are imposed and must be enforced, how do you read this? What does it mean? It's gonna means it's going to get you. So what it would mean, it, it, it means if you're not merciful Then your unmerciful deeds will be recorded in the record books. There will be a judicial proceeding in which God passes judgment, and he will show no mercy when he finds you guilty and executes the sentence of torment and death upon you. That's what it means under that view. Did I overstate that? Or have you heard this presented? This is exactly what it means. There's a record going on. All your deeds are being... You'll be judged by the deeds in the record. God, in order to be just, must punish the sinner... And therefore, he executes judgment on the sin and sinner and, and, and tortures you the appropriate amount of time before he kills you. That's under the imposed you. Under the design law, though, how God built things to operate, it means that the one who shows no mercy hardens their own heart, sears their own conscience, warps their character. And on the day of judgment, the absolute truth, the accurate diagnosis of that person's condition will be revealed. And that person will not escape their condition but we'll experience what that unhealed condition brings. Now, which do you think, first off, which do you like better? Yes, this is what it means. If you're unmerciful, think what's happening to your character. Well, think what's happening to your heart. You're hardening it. You're becoming more and more self-centered, more and more hate-filled. Here's my paraphrase of James uh, two twelve and 13. Live like people who understand God, how God built life to operate act like those who are going to be diagnosed by the standard that health and freedom are founded upon. Because one's true condition will be diagnosed accurately without any covering over the actual terminal state of those who have not been restored to selfless love. But selfless love heals our terminal condition. Do you see the the difference in the focus? Any thoughts about that? Anybody uncomfortable with that? Alright, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, read James 2, 1-4. through It is among other things uh, it is among other things a study in contrast. One person is rich, well-dressed and apparently important, while the other is poor, shabbily dressed and apparently a nobody. One receives the utmost courtesy, the other other disdain, one is offered a comfortable prominent seat, the other is told to stand off to the side and find a place on the floor. Any thoughts about this? Just going back to that text, uh, a word you taught me in this class is antithetical thinking. Yes. So, I mean, this text is saying that we must be merciful, but God can't be, because he's just. Oh, the text before. Yeah. Okay. So, to expect us to be more merciful, more good than God. Under the imposed view of looking at yes. it. Yes. 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 It's bizarre. It is bizarre. Yes. Well, my James be talking about human mercy and human judgment, um, because does God's mercy really triumph his judgment or are they identical well you know I think I think it is connected because isn't it true that if we are merciless it changes us oh absolutely and doesn't that have a determining factor in our ultimate destiny and how God j- diagnoses us in the end yes yes so I think they're they're connected yes we, and and who else do we have to be merciful to other than other humans I mean we can be merciful to animals too for sure Amen. we don't often get a chance to be merciful to an angel but sometimes we entertain angels unawares, it says. But, but, but not, not too often, probably. Yeah, the mercy triumphs over judgment. I just think he's, he's speaking about human mercy and human judgment. In human judgment, it was just flawed. I see God's mercy tri- triumphing over the diagnosis. We are diagnosed as terminal. And God's mercy triumphs over that through Jesus Christ, who took that condition and cured it. And through him, we can actually escape. As soon as Adam sinned, the human race was on a terminal trajectory towards eternal non-existence. Christ came and partook of this condition and altered the outcome for all who will partake with Him. Thus, His mercy um, triumphs over the the diagnosis or the, the ultimate conclusion or judgment of what was going to happen. That's a good point. Thanks. Because certainly wouldn't I mean, I mean otherwise you know our sins I mean, would be condemned. You know, what I mean? certainly the judgment would find us guilty or not guilty. So when we use this language, judgment, guilty or not guilty, where does that tend to pull us? And which which of the two law constructs does that do? It, It tends to pull us over into this imposed law construct. And this is how many people see it, guilty or not guilty. And I think that was initially Satan's first argument. Yes. But and every sin must be punished. Urge Satan, that's exactly right. And this is what leads to a lot of the penal substitutionary theology, because they say under that model, when you accept Jesus, his record gets placed in front of yours, the Father judges him in your place, and he declares those who accept Jesus innocent. Or declared innocent. Mm-hmm. It's not true. Because that would make God a liar. When when in human history did is Adam historically, factually innocent? Mm-hmm. No, what gets declared is when we accept Christ, we get a new heart, right spirit. The law gets written on the heart and mind. You get reborn. You get recreated. The heart gets circumcised by the spirit. You get the heart of stone removed. You get the heart of flesh put in. All of these metaphors are telling you you get healed, restored, regenerated, recreated in Christ's likeness. Thus, he doesn't declare you innocent. He declares you healed, well, righteous, set right, put right, if you will, back with God in your actual condition of being. But we still have the history of being deviant from God's design, but we've had a change in heart, mind, motive, so now we are in harmony with God's design. But the history doesn't change. There was a time when we weren't. And that's God's mercy. Yes, that is God's mercy overcoming. But it's not a declarative thing of some legal status. Imagine this contrast of the, of the rich and the, and the uh, poor coming to church. Church. Imagine that you're working in an ER, and in comes an Olympic athlete in best top condition followed immediately behind by a COPD or heavy smoker in COPD shortness of breath uh, uh, cachectic, and and, and diseased looking what would happen if in that ER you ignored the 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 person that's barely be able to catch breath and spent all your attention falling over the Olympic athlete that doesn't make sense at all does it that's what it's talking about do we see do we see through this lens of design law that we are sick and, and dying. This is what the metaphors of the Old Testament, you, the sores from head to toe. All your righteousness is like filthy rags. You're diseased and sick. And he's wanting to restore us to health. And then church is supposed to be a hospital for spiritually sick people. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what it's supposed to be? Mm-hmm. Yes, and if you think about a hospital, this is what some people tell me, I don't want to go to church, there's so many hypocrites there. I go, imagine if you were sick and you said, I don't want to go to the hospital. There's so many sick people there. (laughs) That doesn't make sense at all. Unless the hospital is run by the sick. Amen. (laughs) You follow what I mean by that? Okay. And then they're practicing. They're actually doing things that are contrary to, to good hygiene and good health. And they're actually doing principles that spread disease. Then you don't want to go to that hospital true but aren't we all sick we are all sick but, but, uh, but when, we're, when the hospital is run by people who are partaking the remedy and they're actually healing and they're practicing the methods of God that restore health then, it's, then that's the place you want to go yes. God wants us to see through the lens of his design of love and seek to love other people bringing them back to unity with himself you know, one of the things that I crossed, crossed my mind this morning, as I was just kind of going through my routines of getting ready this morning, it popped into my mind, had, you know, in the in early Testament, New Testament church, those people were not joining an organization. They were not joining a denomination. They were not joining an institution. They were joining a family. Think about what they were joining. They were joining a group that loved each other, that were for each other, And you read how they functioned. They gave of themselves to help each other. They gave and they shared their stuff. They were part of a collective, a family. But they had differences of ideas and opinion. Peter and Paul disagreed openly about associating with the circumcised fellows and the uncircumcised fellows. Yet they were still part of the same family for each other, helping each other, nurturing each other. What happened was, after Constantine converted about that time, was the the idea of that imposed law came in. They were operating on law of love. We must love each other. They were operating now under this this system of rules and a codification of doctrines started coming in. Creeds we had to. And now we have tests of fellowship. You must believe the same thing we believe. We don't love each other anymore. Now we fracture into different organizational uh, groups, institutional groups that have the same collective beliefs but we don't necessarily love. God is calling for the end of time for the people to come back into an organization, a group, a movement that love each other. Just came to me this morning, I don't know. Third paragraph says, uh, in, the Greco- in the Greco-Roman culture of the first century, one's public image and position were all important. Those with wealth, education, or political influence were ex- expected to use these assets to enhance their reputation and benefit their personal interest. Any large gift or public... To public or religious projects obligated the receiver to reciprocate to the giver in some way. Kindness was repaid with loyalty and generosity with public appreciation. The few upper class people who attended Christian service expected privileged treatment. Is it only in the ancient culture that the rich and famous expect special treatment? Do we do any of this today? No one expects if they donate money to a building project that the building would be named after them, do they? <laughs> That, that That's not something we do. No institution would actually go out and seek um, and solicit donations for naming opportunities, would they? Mm. If one donates for the purpose of having the name on the building, would that be like the rich publican who gave his money so everyone could see? And Christ said he has his reward? Mm-hmm. Bricks in the walkway. Bricks in the walkway, yeah. In other words, giving to get something for self is not giving. Giving to get something for self is not giving and doesn't result in the same transformation of character as giving without the expectation of return. So, giving in order to give with no expectation of return results in transformation of character. But how often do we appeal to the selfish motives in people and thus cheat them of the opportunity to grow in giving? How many fundraisers appeal to the selfish aspects of people so when they give, they don't get the blessing that they would otherwise give if they gave just out of a heart of love? Do we treat people equally here in our churches? Or communities. Do we treat, when, when you're at church and the pastor comes in, or the conference president, or the general conference president, or maybe Medal of Honor winners, or politicians, doctors, television personalities, do they get treated the same as everybody else when they come to church? My guess is they long to be. There's a takeaway of not being able to walk into a room and blend in. And some people would probably really appreciate being able to do that. And they can't. Yes. Yeah. How do we insulate ourselves from allowing the expectations of the me-first worldview? That's the me-first worldview. It's out there. It's everywhere. How do we insulate ourselves from that infecting our church and each other? It comes back to love. When we love well, we experience joy in doing for others. Think about the people in your life that you love. And when you see them, if they're, maybe they're unemployed, but you haven't seen your cousin for three three years and you love your cousin or your son or your daughter or whoever, and they and they walk through the door, what happens? I'm so happy to see you. Right? And it's a joy to do for people that we love. But when we don't love and we're Put in a position to help someone, it often can be irritating. an imposition, and when we love, we rejoice in the successes. Somebody we love that gets a success, gets a promotion, gets an advancement, gets the the, the anchor spot on Good Morning America. We celebrate that, but when we don't love, it's not fair I, I, I'm, a, I'm better at that than they are. We're jealous. So in our church, what are some of the differences that make us vulnerable to prejudice, discrimination, and bias? Differences that make us vulnerable. Ultimately, it's the heart issue of not loving and self-centeredness. But they have traction on certain issues. I just, I just bolded some of them. I'll run some bias. See if, see if this resonates as you can see where this could happen. Soci- socioeconomic status. How about education? We can be biased on that. Mm-hmm. How about intelligence? Race. Actual religion. I know SDAs would never be biased against (laughs) non-SDAs. That would never happen. How about sex? Health. Personal hygiene. Tattoos, body piercing, jewelry, or the way one dresses. That wouldn't be something we would discriminate or be biased based on, would it? What about sexual orientation? What about our view of the way to obey, like Sabbath-keeping? We wouldn't be prejudicial against people who keep Sabbath different than us, would we? Or how about our view of church authority? Would that be divisive amongst us? Do you know every one of these focus on externals? Every one of these things that, that divide us focus on externals, the outward appearance, such that we use these to compare ourselves to others, why do we do this? Because we are all filled, all of us since Adam, filled with fear and selfishness. We're insecure and we look for ways of making ourselves feel better. Thus, we find something in others that we judge to be worse than what we see in ourselves, that we can then criticize and look down upon and ridicule. This is what the Pharisees did with their prejudice. Towards the non-Jews, towards the women, towards the tax collector, towards the prostitutes. This is what we do. But what does God focus on? Heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks the on the heart, on the character. And the question is, do they have a character like Christ? Do they love God with all their heart and love their neighbor as their self? So, let me ask you the question. Can a person have a character like Christ where they love others more than self and would give their life for others and be Rich or poor. Healthy or sick. Well-groomed or disheveled. Intelligent or intellectually challenged. Educated or ignorant. Black, white, Hispanic, or any other race. Tattooed or not. Sabbath or Sunday churchgoer. Now I'm starting to meddle, aren't I? SDA, Catholic, Jew, Evangelical, Islamic, Buddhist, or Atheist? Could that happen? Could it be that someone could have a heart like Christ and not even be a Christian? Yes. Male, female, or intersexed? Heterosexual or homosexual. What about if they believe lies about God that He's a dictator? What if they surrender their thinking to church authority? See, the things that matter most are those things that, that eat, would interfere with our ability to have the law of love restored in our hearts. That's the important stuff. If it interferes with the law of love being restored in our hearts, that is something we should take note of and be concerned about. Are we becoming like Christ or not? And the and lies do this, and the biggest of those lies are lies about God. To the degree we harbor lies about God, it does interfere with our ability to become like him. Because by beholding, we become changed. We become like that, which we admire worship. This is one of those design laws about how things are built. You can't avoid it. Isn't the issue that we confuse loving a person unconditionally with condoning? Yes, and so under the imposed model sin is bad stuff and if they're doing bad stuff then we have to punish and so forth and so on. Under the design model though, if you want to free yourself from that attention at all, have you ever known somebody that you loved who was sick? With any sickness, leukemia, cancer, um, maybe they were using IV drugs and they've infected themselves and they've got a heart infection now and they're sick and they're dying of their sickness. Does your love for them change? Do you hate them now? Do you want to get a whip out and beat them for this? (laughs) No. See, when we see that sin actually is a condition of being that is destructive to the sinner, we see them as sick, and we want to free them from it. But as sinners, what we do is we say, okay, they didn't bring the leukemia on themselves, but the IV needle user, they brought it on themselves. So we want to... Yes, we do. And that's back over here under this model. We're making distinctions. You know, if you read in the book Steps to Christ, Ellen White states that um, not all sins are of equal magnitude, even in God's eyes. Some sins are actually much more significant. The sins of alcoholism, and, and uh, she says the, the uh, more base sins that would be like sexual sins and so forth, they are not the worst in God's eyes. Because those people generally f- feel a need. They, they, after you do some of those things, there's a, there's a conviction, there's, a, there's an ugliness in the heart. that We're not proud of those things, and, and there's a longing for something better. The sins that are most offensive in God's eyes are Phariseeism, pride, arrogance, self-centeredness, hypocr- you know, self-righteousness. This is the worst because this feels no need. I'm good. I don't have a need. I'm, I'm better than you. These are the worst sins. And don't we flip that around. Yes, and don't we flip that around, she says. Yes, we do. Under this imposed model. We sure do. So, loving our neighbors, Tuesday's lesson, we jumped to Tuesday's lesson, talking about loving our neighbors and and what is it to love our neighbor? Uh, Ultimately, is doing what's in the best interest of that person, not simply what they want or need. In the back, question in the back. Jonathan is asking, isn't there a way to help with sin without condemning and what part does the sinner's response to having their sickness revealed Play in their in their relationship. The first step in helping someone else is to make sure your heart is right with the Lord. You can't help somebody else if you are already so corrupt in heart and character. And and many people who are on the uh, we must call sin by its right name mission are in the Pharisaical, self centered, pride filled camp, and they must they must point out sin and they must crush it and they must drive it from the church. Okay. No, when you're like Christ, how did Christ treat all the sinners he came across? With grace. he prote- Even the ones that were his enemies. You remember the woman caught in adultery, not only was he gracious to her, but he protected the reputations of the people trying to kill him. He didn't expose them. So, n- number, yes, there's a place for us to help, but we do that by, by living out love in action, loving that person. And if you have love in your heart for the person and they know you really care about them, then you can approach them and talk to them about things in their life that you think are destructive to them. But if there's no love in your heart for them and you're just intolerant of deviant behaviors, and those deviant behaviors must be pointed out and they must be stopped, there is no no opportunity, there's no platform for you to stand upon to bring that to them. They will reject you and they will close their heart to you. All right, uh, Tuesday's lesson. Loving our neighbors, doing what's in their best interest. I I thought I'd ask the question, because we all hear this theoretically. We all, we all, we all talk about this. But I thought, what are the obstacles? What is it that gets in our way of doing this? I mean, we should point some obstacles out. And we'll start first with the obstacles in our own heart. What are the obstacles in our own heart, our own life, our own mind, our own experience that, that, that make it hard for us to love others well? And we can talk about these. I can, I can run through them. Fear. Fear is number one. We're afraid. We're afraid of of being vulnerable. We're afraid of getting hurt. We're afraid of being misunderstood. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of being laughed at. We're afraid of... We're afraid. We're afraid. And then selfishness many times. Well, I don't want to share that with them. I only got like, you know, one sandwich and I'm hungry. Uh, No. (laughs) Selfishness. Um, Distrust. Which is part of fear and self. But distrust. We don't trust that our actions would be... uh, uh, seen properly or, or understood properly. Somebody could, could misrepresent us. Somebody could take our actions and twist it against us. Prejudice. Think about, the, think about the prejudices that Christians have done throughout history. I won't go into them. Just look in your data bank of human history and people who are purporting to be Christian and how prejudicial they were and how they treated people. Think about the, the, the Nazi Christians in Germany fatigue sometimes you're just tired you're just tired you're worn out you're exhausted now this doesn't now not all these are sin Christ was fatigued and took time away and he went and rested so if you're fatigued and you need rest get your rest there's a place for that apathy how about apathy just don't care anymore worn out emotionally just don't care fed up tired of trying ignorance I don't I didn't know I didn't know they needed help But I don't know how to help. Ignorance. And then lies, often about, in a Christian theological construct, believing that what this person needs is not compassion, not love, not gentleness. They need a good, swift kick in the backside. That's what they need. Or they need strong discipline. They They need to be brought up before the church and publicly humiliated. You know, I had a patient who told me that the church they went to, each week in this church, the pastor would call sin out from the, from the pulpit. Johnny, you've been looking at porn this week. From the pulpit in the church. Could you imagine? Susie, you cheated on your husband last Thursday night. From the pulpit. Can you imagine? I told him to go to another church. Find another church. This is dysfunctional. No, seriously. You got to think what kind of sadomasochistic Christian comes to a place like that, right? And then there are, of course, the lies that you believe your action is an act of love, but you've been tricked or duped by someone. And Then obstacles in the heart of the person you 're trying to, uh, to extend love to what are the obstacles because loving is loving somebody is a relational experience and, and there can be obstacles on our side, but there can be obstacles on the other, other person 's side as well and the first again is fear fear afraid to open up and be loved. How many of you have somebody tried to do kindness and, and you 're afraid and you're and you put up you 're suspicious you're, is, you really care? what what's, what's, is there a hook is there is there a where 's the scam where's <laughs> Am I right or wrong? come on you're right, yeah, okay uh, distrust see the other uh, see the other's actions as a as a manipulation prejudices lies again, uh, for instance, there are people who believe that being uh, that love looks like being beaten, or some have lies in their head that they think love and sex are the same, so that's a barrier to experiencing healthy love because they think that love and sex is or they love is is like is being liked or being popular they think well that's what love is love is being liked so they they do anything they have to avoid rejection to make sure people like them because they want to be loved I had one one parent whose son was an adolescent and all types of all types of acting out problems and and the father told me that he never disciplined his son without his son's permission you won't be mad at daddy if daddy puts you in time out will you (laughs) you see a problem with this you see he's got a confused idea what love is that's not love False beliefs. People have false beliefs about themselves. I don't deserve to be loved. I'm so awful, so horrible, so messed up so many times. I don't deserve love. I'm too sinful. I've I've disobeyed God. I've got too many black marks in my record. I, I, I don't deserve love. I'm too dirty, too ugly, too worthless. This happens a lot in people who have been molested, abused, mistreated in some way. They get false beliefs about themselves that are obstacles to experiencing love. And then there are situational obstacles. Just simply separation of time and space. You know, you guys, somebody you, you, that needs you, but they're they're on the other side of the world. They're in a different city, different county. Not having the actual ability, whether it be knowledge. You want to help your child with calculus, but you know you never even finished algebra. You want to help them, but you don't have the ability to help them. Repairing a car or, or helping move somebody's furniture, but you've got a bad back and you can't lift. You'd love to help, but you can't. There are obstacles, real real physical obstacles sometimes to helping, loving someone. And then being obstructed by some force other than yourself, being actually literally literally restrained. Last paragraph says Sin is the greatest of all evils, and it is ours to pity and help the sinner. There are many who err and who feel their shame and their folly. They are hungry for the words of encouragement. They look up upon their mistakes and errors until they are driven to almost to desperation. These souls we are not to neglect. If we are Christians, we shall not pass on the other side, keeping as far as possible from the very ones who most need our help. When we see human beings in distress, whether through affliction or through sin, we shall never say, this does not concern me. Did you notice what the responsibility in the very first sentence of that paragraph was? To pity and to help the sinner. Not to judge and punish the sinner. How many times is there this reflex to judge, punish, and gossip about? What would happen if you discovered your pastor was having an affair? How long before that would be through the church? How long? Seriously? How many would go in love to the pastor to to redeem the pastor? And what kind of a law is seeking to heal and restore to pity and help the sinner rather than punish? That's that design protocol. We see life built by God on the principles of love and the fabric of the cosmos operates this way and disharmony with it is destructive to those out of harmony. Then we want to restore. We want to help get them back in harmony. But when we see the law as a human construct, a system of rules that you must obey with external enforcement, then we we want to hold them accountable and make sure they get their just rewards. So the question, as we think about this paragraph, what is sin? And I brought this today. If you don't have this book, I would encourage you to get it. It's now in a paperback form format on Amazon. So it's only like 14 bucks on Amazon now. But this was written, 19 authors wrote this. Servant God, Cosmic Conflict Over God's Trustworthiness. And out of the second chapter, which, which I wrote, by the way. <laughs> I only wrote one chapter. I wrote the second chapter. But out of the second chapter, it says, recently I recently had the opportunity to speak with over 350 Christian high school students. I passed out cards and asked them to write down their answer to this question. What is sin? High school students, Christian high school students. Here's a few of their responses were. It is something that separates us from God. To do something that is morally wrong. Anything evil or unjust. Something that brings us down. The absence of anything good, anything not of God. Doing anything you know in your gut is wrong. Bad stuff. A bad thing that Satan discovered and brought upon us. The cause of all pain and suffering. When you do something you feel guilty about. Anything that makes God unhappy. Something to be forgiven. Whatever you do wrong, and you don't even care what you did. And the following answers were submitted by more than 10% of the student body. These two, more than 10%. Sin is not following the Ten Commandments. Sin is going against the will of God. As I thought about this, contemplated these answers, I realized they actually broke down into two categories. All of them went into two categories. Sin is either bad behavior, an act of disobedience or doing something wrong, or sin is some evil commodity, entity, element, some stuff or thing that separates us from God. It almost sounded like if we just get rid of this sin stuff, everything would be okay. Three students out of 350, three students saw it differently. Their answers pierced a deeper level of truth to them. sin was something more than bad behavior It was certainly not a commodity that could be passed from sinner to animal and to building and to books and so forth it wasn 't a commodity to be passed around. Their answers were one student sin is the absence of love the the other the second student the opposite of god 's character sin is being selfish, and the third focusing on self it all started with satan and how he wanted to be greater than god this is the root of all evil they saw sin as a state of being a defect of character a deviation from god's heart of love how do you answer the question what is sin being out of harmony with god's character of love the way he has designed and actually constructed the human organism to function If we make the wrong diagnosis, what follows? The wrong intervention, the wrong treatment. And this is what's happened. Many, many a Christian has made the wrong diagnosis. When we diagnose sin as primarily behavioral, and this is what the Jews did 2,000 years ago, Jesus said to them in Matthew 5, you say if you commit adultery, bad behavior, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, a heart condition. You say if you commit murder, bad behavior, you commit sin. I say if you... Hate your brother in your heart. See, Jesus is telling them this is a heart condition. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good of the good in him. The evil man brings forth evil of the evil start up in him. The behaviors are a manifestation of the condition of the heart. This is uh, Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. The Bible does not say that God punished the human race for one man's sin. But that the nature of sin, namely my claim to my right to myself, entered into the human race through one man. But it also says that another man, capital M, took upon himself the sin of the human race and put it away. An infinitely more profound revelation. Sin is something I am born with and cannot touch. Only God touches sin through redemption. It is through the cross of Christ that God redeemed the entire human race from the possibility of damnation through the heredity of sin. Remember Psalms, I was born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalm 51? God nowhere holds a person responsible for having the heredity of sin and does not condemn anyone because of it. Condemnation comes when I realize that Jesus Christ came to deliver me from this heredity of sin, and yet I refuse to let him do so. From that moment, I begin to get the seal of damnation. Now, he's quoting John. This is the condemnation, and he inserts a parenthetical and the critical moment, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. This is condemnation. When light comes and you prefer darkness to light, you reject light, you close your heart, your mind to the light, the truth, the love of Christ, you you shut it out, that is condemnation. The condition with which you're born does not condemn you. So the metaphor you've heard me use, an HIV-infected man and woman get together and have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? Nothing. Baby did nothing wrong. But does the baby still have a condition, if unremedied, that will result in its death, will kill it? This is our condition. We're born in sin, conceived in iniquity, born in a condition, deviant from God's original design in Eden, He doesn't doesn't blame us for this. He knows it wasn't our fault. He He knows we had no choice into the condition with which we were born. So he sent Christ to give us a choice for a different outcome. And light has come to show you God's design, to show you God's true character in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you accept him, then the spirit is poured out and he writes his law on your heart and mind. You become reborn. You have the heart circumcised by the spirit. The mind of christ you're recreated in the inner man the old is gone the new has come all these metaphors are transformational regenerational that we actually leave the trajectory of our birth and we have a new birth and live in new with new methods and principles so if that light comes you recognize your condition you recognize you're born in the situation the light of, of of jesus christ's truth and what he's revealed comes to your heart and you reject it to so the hiv-infected baby it's not condemned The HIV-infected baby grows to the age of accountability, and there's a remedy that is free and is offered to him. If you take it, it'll put your your disease into remission. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. See, without the shedding of blood, the human character could not remit back to its pre-sinful perfection state that God created Adam in. Without the shedding of blood. Without a, an intervention of somebody with, with leukemia and cancer. We want cancer to go into remission. We want the cancer cells to remit back to their precancerous state. So if that HIV-infected baby is offered a remedy and rejects the remedy, that's when condemnation comes. When we reject Jesus Christ and when he's done for us, that's when condemnation comes, not before. Yes? The shedding of blood because we have... It. You know how it talks about without the shedding of blood, there's no... Remission. Remission, no because yes. Because we have to realize the severity of our condition and and be brought about, you know, turn about face in our love relationship with God. Is, I mean, i I've often no, struggled with no, what that means. In, in reality, our condition was deviant from God's design. There was no human being. See, prior to Christ's incarnation, after Adam's sin, and prior to Christ's incarnation, okay, we have angelic perfection still exists in heaven divine perfection we have character of a divine nature god is still perfect and divine if we believe there are intelligent beings on other worlds they have character perfect in their nature but there's no perfect human character christ came to be what adam was was originally created to be he became the second adam and he took mankind broken off an adam and carried it to perfection And restored in the human species, God's design, God's law, God's character. In Christ, the law of God was lived out perfectly, loving God and loving others perfectly. And thus, he carried humankind back to its original ideal. And so in the person, the being of Jesus Christ, the human species, this creation was saved in his person. As long as there's one panda alive, pandas are not extinct. Jesus retains his humanity in heaven. This same Christ that you saw has gone up into heaven. We have a human being who partook of this humanity in heaven and will always be so. Now, there does remain the question how many other specimens will join him. This, what he's done is open to all. We can all partake, but all won't. But even if not one other human being partook of what Christ has achieved, the human species was saved in Jesus Christ. Yes? yes, and exposed the uh, for who was in the process. Absolutely, and so the critical question then: oh, What is sin? So the Bible gives the definition of sin as lawlessness, or sin is, is transgression of the law, or breaking the law. And then what law? Well, the, the Bible verses. You know all the Bible verses. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans thirteen ten. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians five fourteen. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right, James two, eight. Jesus said that all law hangs upon loving God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. In Proverbs twenty one twenty one says, He who pursues righteousness and love finds what do they find if they pursue love? Life. Or the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving. What does reviving mean? Bring life. Bringing life to what? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. soul. How does that work? Because God's law are the protocols of love that he's built right into the fabric of the cosmos. And life is actually constructed to operate upon it. And so the example, just the simple one we often use is, every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide to the plants, an act of giving. And the plants give back oxygen to you, an act of giving upon which life is constructed to operate. You're you're free to deviate, to transgress the law. You can take a plastic bag, big old hefty bag, tie it over your head and selfishly hoard your carbon dioxide to yourself. But the wages of doing that is... Now, if we have a person, though, who's transgressing the law, they're doing this, they've tied this bag over their head. There's a transitionary period that happens before they die. First, maybe they don't notice anything in the first minute. But then they start getting tingling in their fingers and lips and nose. And then they start getting a little lightheaded and weak and fatigued. And then they begin to hallucinate. And then they pass out. And then eventually they die. But anywhere, no, get your mind around Anywhere on the trajectory before death, anywhere, if you simply take the bag off and put them back in harmony with the law, what happens? They revive. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Coming back into harmony with God, having the Spirit poured out, it says in Romans five five, He pours His love into our hearts, revives us, brings life to the soul. Sin is stepping outside of that. Also, the Bible describes sin in this way, Romans fourteen twenty three. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. How do we understand that? Another way to phrase it is failure to trust God is sin. Do you see that as a synonym? Everything that does not come from faith is sin. Failure to trust God is sin. Do you see a synonym there? Because mm-hmm. the Greek, P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis is translated both trust and faith. Same word. Or remember the falling dominoes of destruction. If you're in a loving, healthy marriage where you love your spouse and they love you and someone tells you a lie that your spouse is having an affair, but they're not but they show you pictures they've doctored on their computer and so you believe the lie if you believe the lie does something inside you change lies believed break the circle of love and trust broken love and trust I don't trust my spouse they're cheating they're out with somebody else they might bring me disease, disease uh, results in fear I'm afraid now something's going to happen to me because I don't trust them and I better watch out for myself because they're not watching me anymore so I better get to the bank and get the money before they do lies believed break the f- circle of love and trust broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness And fear and selfishness result in acts of sin. We go out to protect self. This is a terminal condition with which we're born. And the Bible says the human mind is deceitful above all things, utterly wicked who can know it. See, when we deviate from God's law, um, neurobiologically, your orbital cortex, the part of the brain right above your orbit of your eye, its normal function is to give you a conviction of wrongdoing and redirect you away from doing something inappropriate. Excuse me. so if you were to stand up in here and try to take your clothes off in front of the rest of us this part of the brain would start firing like crazy you'd get very stressed and anxious don't do it, don't do it it's convicting you this is inappropriate, don't do it interestingly enough when the orbital cortex fires and you feel guilty it impairs the functioning of your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex where you reason and think thus you cannot think clearly when you're guilt ridden isn't that interesting? until the orbital cortex is so damaged that it no longer impairs the prefrontal cortex. Good. And they've done studies on people who, um, where they've taken individuals and they've addicted them to um, cocaine or heroin or things like this. And if you are involuntarily addicted, your motor reward circuits and your, um, and your motor circuits and your reward circuits where you get pleasure will alter um, and I won't go through all the, the neurobiological steps that that happens, will alter such that you become dependent and tolerant to these substances if you're involuntarily addicted. If you're voluntarily addicted, the same thing happens in those circuits. But the orbital cortex only changes and lose sensitivity if you voluntarily addict yourself. If you're involuntarily addicted, the orbital cortex does not change. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So you have to choose to go against your own conscience in order to damage the orbital cortex. And so cocaine addicts who addict themselves, in the beginning, they actually have significant cognitive impairment. They can't process, they can't problem solve, they can't score as well and test. But if they keep the addiction going for a period of months or so, then what happens is the cognitive impairments go away and their cognitive functions return. Why? Because they're... And, and that corresponds with changes in the orbital cortex. The orbital cortex begins to thin. They lose their conscience. They're searing their conscience. Isn't this fascinating? Amazing. So, because our minds are damaged in this way, deceitful above all things, God has intervened with therapeutic tools to help us, to help us understand. And throughout human history, since Adam's fall, he's intervened with various things that were not needed before. First thing he intervened with was animal sacrifices. The animal sacrifices, why were, why were these included? What was the diagnostic and therapeutic intent of the animal sacrifice given to Adam. First, to demonstrate that deviation from the design results in death. Because a sinner would come and confess sin on the head of the animal. And then the sinner would cut the circulation. The Bible says life is in the blood. And what does the blood do? It circles. It just circles. It just circles. It just circles. The law of love acted out. And so sin severs God's design, severs the circle of life. And death occurs. Death occurs. So it was to teach that sins is deviant from the way God has constructed things and results in death at the hand of the sinner, not at the hand of God. That was also taught in the enactment. And also that a substitute was going to come to take this condition upon himself to cure it. That was all taught in this. It was a, a teaching tool. Further, it was designed to make him sick. To actually make them sick. Imagine, I don't, I don't know if we imagine, today we're so insulated, but those of you who have a pet, your favorite dog or cat, imagine that you've committed sin and now you've got to confess your sin on the head of that, your pet, and you've got to cut your pet's throat. Do you understand how sick it would make you? It was designed to make them sick. That sin is revolting. So you never want to do it again. Not just some cognitive adjustment in some accounting record books in heaven, no, and then circumcision Sim- circumcision symbolically designed as a cutting away of, the, of our hearts' affections and ties to worldliness, a purification of the heart to God. The reproductive organs are specially designed by God to to endow humans with godlike abilities to share in godlike privileges of. Procreation, A voluntary union of two people in a unity of love, giving of themselves to bring forth life in their image. This is how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come into unity and give of themselves and create beings in their image. This is a godlike power he's given us. Sin corrupted the heart and selfishness instead of love ruled in the heart and these powers became corrupted. Relationships, intimacy, love became corrupted in a whole host of ways. Men dominating and subjugating women instead of sacrificing themselves for their wives like Christ sacrificed himself for the church, fertility worship, pornography, polygamy, prostitution, fornication and all its forms, paraphilias which are the sexual deviations and perversions, and all the genetic and medical issues which in themselves are not sin but are a result of sin damaging God's creation, infertility, hermaphrodism, androgen insensitivity syndrome, Swire's syndrome, sexual identity disorders, so many different problems because of circumcision was designed to symbolically demonstrate the purification of the inmost intimate parts of a person's heart. And just like circumcision of a physical nature, you can't walk around the community and know who's been circumcised. Go to the mall. He's circumcised. He's not. Mm -mm. Can't tell. Likewise, you can't walk around the community and know whose hearts have been circumcised by looking. You can't know. You have to get intimate with someone. And additionally, it was also an added benefit to a people at a particular point in history who were about to face fertility cults on all fronts and protect them perhaps as, a, a, as a, a Jewish adolescent steps into a fertility cult with the fertility prostitute who's about to take him into her worship service and he drops his clothes and she says, Oh, I see you're a Jewish boy. Oh, you're right, I shouldn't be here. Perhaps. Perhaps last-ditch effort to protect them from participating in things they should never participate in. The Ten Commandments given to diagnose and expose selfishness and lead us to Christ. Uh, Romans 7, 7-12 for my paraphrase. What shall we say then? Is the law evil and selfish because it increases the amount of evil and selfishness we see? Absolutely not. For I would not have known what evil and selfishness looked like if it wasn't for the diagnostic efficacy of the law. I would not have realized that coveting was evil and selfish if the law didn't say don't covet. But selfishness, taking advantage of the fact that the law is only a diagnostic instrument and not a remedy, magnified every covetous desire within me. For apart from the diagnostic ability of the law, sin is unrecognizable. Once I thought I was healthy and free from the infection of distrust, fear, and selfishness, but then the commandment examined me, exposed how utterly infected I was, and diagnosed me as terminal. I discovered the very commandment given only to diagnose my condition I had unwittingly attempted to use as a cure and thus my condition only worsened working to keep the law working to keep the law for selfishness taking advantage of the fact that the commandment could only diagnose and not cure deceived me into thinking I could be cured by working to keep the commandments but instead my terminal state only worsened so understand this the law diagnoses perfectly and the commandment is the standard of what is right and good set apart by God to reveal what is evil and destructive And then the sanctuary service, with all its regulations and holidays and rules, was a little mini theater with costumes that they could act out. The entire plan of salvation, taking somebody alienated from God and the plan showing a progression moving inward back to at one-ment, where we're all united with God again one day. This was just an enactment. This was out of a book. Uh, George Graves emailed me this little quote this week from a book called Our Father Cares. And it says, Christ, at an infinite cost by a painful process mysterious to angels as well as to men assumed humanity hiding his divinity laying aside his glory he was born a babe in Bethlehem in human flesh he lived the law of God that he might condemn sin in the flesh and bear bear witness to heavenly intelligences that the law was ordained to life and to ensure the happiness peace and eternal good of all who obey I just love that I think it's beautiful Wow, and I wanted to get... We have two or three minutes, so I'm going to have to jump into Thursday's lesson. Um, It says, uh, Nothing is clearer than the teaching that we will be judged by the law based on what we have done, whether for good or evil. At the same time, too, the Bible is also clear that through faith we are covered by its righteousness. The covering entails two aspects, forgiveness, justification, and obedience, sanctification, and so forth and so on. Um, This is all based on imposed law. It's all based on believing God runs his universe like human beings run, makes a list of rules without inherent consequence, and thus must police the breaches in those rules and impose external punishments upon those who do wrong. That's what it's all based upon. And the lesson recognizes that that actual thinking leads to mental health problems, because the lesson states in the lesson following. If we thought about it long enough, we could become so paranoid about the judgment that we would give up in despair. But it is not But that is not what it means to fear God for the hour of judgment has come. Instead, we must always trust in the righteousness of Jesus whose merits alone are are our only hope for judgment. And I'm going to jump and give some quick examples. Imagine an IV heroin user. He's been using IV heroin. He's got dirty needles. He's got an infection in his heart. He's breaking design laws, laws of health. He's also breaking imposed human laws, laws of the land. Does he want to go before the magistrate, have his deeds revealed, and have the judge pronounce sentence upon him and punish him? Does he want to do that? No. But let's use the analogy here in our lesson. So he goes before the judge. The judge provide, pronounces judgment upon him. But then Jesus steps up to take his place. So the judge examines Jesus, finds him innocent, and there, based on the examination of Jesus, he now declares the heroin addict innocent and sets him free. How does that help him? He's dying of anocarditis and a cardiac infection. So you're legally free. You're still dying. Your terminal. Your condition has not been changed. This is the bogusness of this, this type of theology. It leads people into false security in Christianity where they claim legal uh, adjustment of their standing before God where there's no power to transform their life to live like Christ. The reality, however, is something quite different. This is what our church used to teach about this. This is a book called Christ Object Lessons, page 311. Talking about the robe of righteousness, which doesn't cover us. The judge can't see how wicked we are. No. It says, um, the robe woven in the loom in heaven has not one thread of human devising. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Notice, it's transformational. It's regenerational. We become new creatures in Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature. So, what then is God's judgment? Substitute the word diagnosis. God always diagnoses the condition accurately. And here is a couple of examples from Scripture. Hosea 4:17. Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. There's a judgment. It's a diagnosis. Or Revelation 22, 11. It's talking about the end of time. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. Let him who does holy continue to be holy. Because what does it tell us when Jesus comes, 1 John 3, 2? When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will be like him. We will be changed. We will be pure, and we will continue to be pure. It's an actual change of heart. And then, really fast, then what does Revelation 14, 7 about God sitting in judgment, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. They've misapplied it. It is not about God diagnosing us. That's what Revelation is about. Revelation in this setting is about the people at the end of time preparing to meet their Savior. It's a call, if you read the second angel's message, to come out of Babylon. So it's saying, hey, the time has come in earth's history when when it's time to make a right judgment about God. See Him for who He is. He's like Jesus revealed. Stop seeing Him as this Roman dictator. Come and worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea and and, and runs His universe on the laws of love. Trust Him. Give glory to Him by living out His life. (coughs) Come out of Babylon stop being part of that confused system of rules do you you know that according to the Christian Encyclopedia there are currently 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible support them why? because much of it is operating on this system of of legal enactments and rules and and you've got to have the right interpretation rather than operating on on a kingdom of love where we come together as the apostolic church did they came together in a unity of love they joined a family where they loved each other And that's why there were still disagreements on doctrines. Peter and Paul again disagreed, but yet they loved each other. We believe that it's instead you have to have the right system of codification of beliefs and love gets extinguished from the heart. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are God of love. We long to be back into your kingdom of love. We long to have our hearts renewed to be like you. We ask for the pouring of your spirit to both enlighten us to see the beauty of your character and empower us to live in harmony with your, your kingdom of love. To the degree we have misunderstandings, show us what those are so we, we can uh, replace those with truth. To the degree we, we are struggling with fear and selfishness, pour your love into our heart that love may cast out our fear. Let us be a light. Let this message about you go to the world so that you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.